The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Are we set? Thank you. So, uh, first of all, I don't know about you, but that's the worst traffic I've been in in a while. So I congratulate you. If you didn't walk here, it was incredibly difficult. So thank you for being here. It shows a great deal of determination. <laughs> I myself was following GPS and learned all kinds of new things about the streets between where I live and, and the meditation center. I have to say, it was interesting. And I got lots of opportunity to practice on the topic that I'm going to talk about tonight, which is greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> so um, it's my intention to do a series on greed, hatred, and delusion. These three qualities are, uh, are called the roots of suffering. They are those qualities that Nibbana says that we have eradicated, that we want to do away with greed, hatred, and delusion. So, you know, the, there are three words that are kind of thrown around in Buddhist circles a lot. And it is really kind of useful to think about what we mean when we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion, those are pretty strong words. You know, I don't, I don't really think of myself as a greedy person or a hateful person or a deluded person. I mean, who wants to be deluded, right? But the truth is that we all have these qualities and we all have these tendencies. And it's useful to see them, to find out what they are, to notice how we interact with greed, hatred, and delusion, or don't interact. And also, what can we do about it? One of the things that I want to set up in the beginning is that to think about these, I want you to totally suspend judgment. Eradicating greed, hatred, and delusion is not about becoming a pers perfect person. Let that go. It's not even about being your better self. It's about freeing yourself from these qualities that create suffering. So how do we recognize them? How do we mitigate against them? How do we free ourselves of greed, hatred, and delusion? On the way here, as I was pulling off of my nice quiet street onto Sand Hill <laughs> Road, some, some car just stopped and, and let me in. And I was so shocked. I said, oh my goodness, you know, here there's traffic in all directions. I had no idea what was happening yet. And this person just stopped and let me in. And I said, oh, isn't that kind? That's really kind. And everybody else is sort of leaning over their steering wheels and their horns honking and lots of red lights. And, and I thought, oh. That felt so good to receive that, that kindness from that person. It made me let other people in, you know, and when the opportunity occurred, I said, oh, yes, this isn't going to slow me down any. I'm just going to let you in. It's not going to slow down the people behind me. It's catching. It's catching not to be greedy. You know, basically these qualities have a lot to do with how we interact with people in the world, 
how we interact with ourselves. Are we greedy toward ourselves? Are we kind toward ourselves? Are we gentle or are we not gentle? And in dealing with them, we also have the opposites of them. We have the opposite of greed is generosity, kindness, the opposite of hatred, non-hatred, non-aversion, the opposite of delusion, wisdom. So how do we cultivate these? How do we make these part of our lives? And how do we do it in a way that doesn't make us the bad guy, <laughs> which is just another way of suffering? How do we just make it a part of our lives so that it doesn't become just one more thing we have to do? So greed is sometimes confused with desire. You know, we talk about desire being a cause of suffering, but really I want to focus on greed, which has a, a more, it, it it's describes selfishness, inappropriate desire, attachment, grasping, hanging on, the grabbing, there's some tension around greed. Hatred refers to selfishness, also, anger, aversion, I don't like that. I want things to be different than they are. I just want things to be different. Disgust toward unpleasant people? Who hasn't felt that? Conditions or even our own uncomfortable feelings, right? Oh, I'm depressed. I don't want to be depressed. This has got to, I, and not only am I depressed, I'm now beating myself up about being depressed. Okay? Delusion has to do with confusion, bewilderment, misperception. I think it's this way, but actually it turns out to be another way. I'm really good at that one. So I want to tell you about a guy. His name is Robert Waldinger. He's a Harvard professor, and I recently saw a short TED Talk that he gave. And he started it out by saying he'd done a survey of millennials and he asked them what their chief goals in life were. 80% of them said they wanted to be rich. And 50% of them said they wanted a major life goal was fame. That's really stunning. Major life goals. 80% wanted to be rich. So the reason he found this interesting is he is the current head researcher on a study that's been ongoing at Stanford, at at Harvard since the 30s. And they gathered up, what's the number, 724 men. And they've been studying them for 75 years. They've interviewed them, they've followed them with their medical histories, they've, they've interviewed their families. They started out with two cohorts of people. One were sophomores at Harvard and the other cohort were, were um, underprivileged people from uh, South Boston, right? They, they mostly were tenement people. So they took these two cohorts of people, and they've been following them for 75 years. So the people in the study now are in their 90s. They still have 60 people that they're still following. So uh, Waldinger is just the current 
head researcher. He's not the, he didn't originate the study. But so what he discovered, he said they were, uh, there were factory workers, lawyers. There was a president of the United States. I think it must have had to be John Kennedy. There, uh, there were schizophrenics, people who became alcoholics, bricklayers. People, it turned out that this cohort of people went into all kinds of, uh, some were entrepreneurs, some were business people. So they studied their work, their home lives, their health, and they had one key finding, one key finding. And that was that good relationships keep us happy and healthy. Good relationships. Nothing else had any impact on the outcome of their lives that nearly came to that. Social connections are good for you. Isolation kills. Loneliness is toxic. Results in shorter lives and uh, less brain health. More, more tendency to dementia in later life. What counts is not the number of friends or being in a committed relationship. What counts is the quality of the relationship. The quality of the relationship. And good relationships protect brains. People in their 80s who are in relationships, in good, strong relationships, minds stay sharper longer. Ultimately, we study greed, hatred, and delusion because they are the primary impediments to good relations, a good life, and freedom from suffering. The suffering of unthwarted wants, the suffering that arises from wanting things to be other than they are. So how do we get to that place? How do we do that? We're going to start with greed, greed and desire. Now greed, green is a burning, burning desire. You know, it's got, it's got an edge to it. There's kind of a grinding feeling to, to greed. It's, it's that part of desire that says, I have to have this. If I don't have this, I can't be happy. All of us have things that we think, if I don't have this, I won't be happy. It's, a, it's an easy, it's a very human thing to have happen. And we get into this place and we say, oh, yeah. You know, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's the right job, maybe it's living in the right place. It's an unquenchable thirst. This is, this is the Buddhist definition of greed, an unquenchable thirst, unquenchable. Craving, lusting after something. It also has a, a feeling of the lack of generosity and compassion toward others. Because there's a, a turning in, a, a self-focus. I need this, I need this. So there's a reinforcing of the I part that comes from greed. It also sets up an otherness, right? There's that quality of greed that says, I, me, mine are deserving of this, and I don't care whether you have it or not. There's a, a sense of competitiveness and it may not be that harsh, you know. I, I don't set out in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to get mine and the rest of you can go to hell. I mean, we don't do that. But there is this quality of, well, I don't really care about them. I really care about whether I get this thing done. You know? 
How do we get trapped by that? The sense of otherness. Those people are different from me. In my mind, this is one of the biggest problems in the world, is only seeing differences between people and not the similarities. Where we set up those people or other, that's where we start having trouble. We treat them with disdain and dismissiveness. Oh. You know, so that irritating person that is always burping in the next room, oh, I, I don't care about them. And we, we forget about things that we might really want to care about. One of the things I noticed is that my, my husband will come to me with his latest great idea, and he'll start explain it, explaining it to me in great detail. Recently, he's gotten on um, uh, studying music theory, and he'll come in and he'll start talking to me about harmonics and strings, and, and I'm just thinking, oh, I really don't want to hear this. I'm, I'm in the middle of something else. And I look at him and I re remind myself, I love this man, and he deserves my attention. Even if I don't care at all about what he's saying, I care about him. It frees me from being greedy with my time. It frees me from thinking, oh, you're wasting my time. I don't care about this. Right? And this is not theoretical. This is just, this is what happens to us in all of our relationships. And every day there are things that arise where we want it a certain way. I've had to use that about what my husband wants to tell me three times today. <laughs> oh, please don't tell me about that again. <laughs> you know, I'm going to listen to this. And you know what? Occasionally I'm surprised that I'm actually interested in it after all. When I stop focusing on this is what I want, this is what I want, and just let what is true be true, then I'm open to other possibilities. I'm open for something else being true. Yeah, okay, so another aspect of, of greed is compulsion. I've gotta have this, I gotta have this. We want more and bigger, more and bigger, better, more colorful, more clue, cute, more quick, more, something more. We notice this when we try to do without something that we normally have, like internet. The power goes off, you're in the middle of something, and the internet is gone. What? <laughs> this can't be happening. Agitation, irritation. I periodically do without my iPhone. I have to tell you, I'm addicted to my iPhone. I know this. I watch it, I see myself pick it up, gotta check the email, I'm a really good, you'll never get your emails past me, I, I check my emails all the time, right? Is this a problem? It's a problem if somebody suffers. If I suffer, if you suffer, if we both suffer, it's a problem. 
So you look for suffering. Does suffering arise out of this? If suffering arises out of this, it's a problem. It deserves to be seen and recognized. What if I'm not aware of what I'm substituting it for? Okay. So when you notice that you're paying a lot of attention to something and that you're obsessing over something, that's the time to say, hmm, is it really because this is so wonderful or that is so not wonderful over there and I don't want to look at that? I don't want to be present for that. I don't want that to be true. I don't want that to be what's happening now. So I'm going to look at this because then I, you know, I'm too busy to notice this over here. I do this. I catch myself doing this. Another part about greed has to do with establishing our source of happiness outside us. You know, that's what's going to make me happy, whatever that is out there. That's going to make me happy. But since we don't have any control over the outcome of anything that we want, actually, we don't have control, we're setting ourselves up for suffering and unhappiness. The more we put something outside of us. If I just control this, then everything will be great. No. No, it usually doesn't happen that way. What we can control is our own intention our own intention. You know, we, we have all of these things that we want. We want a new car, a meaningful relationship, children, grandchildren, a vibrant career. We want the ability to dance. So I, I was once in a relationship with someone who told me he He couldn't dance. He didn't like to dance. He couldn't even skip. It was a major source of embarrassment for him. And despite the fact that I wanted to dance, this was, this was a conflict. So I just quit dancing, even though I loved dancing. And then after we split up, the first thing he had to tell me about his new woman was that she took him dancing. And I sat there and I thought, well, no, that is not fair. Now, I could spend a lot of time trying to figure out what happened in all of that. But what was true was he actually wanted it, but he, he didn't, I couldn't make it happen. Even if I knew that he wanted it, which I probably didn't, I probably just assumed that what he told me was true. There are all kinds of things that we want that we can't articulate. And still we want them. So it's our job to notice what are the things that we're wanting that we, don't, that we haven't even brought out to the forefront, right? We're not even paying too much attention to. We want love. We want the respect of others. We want to be seen a certain way. We want to be seen, period. We want to be seen. We want a stable home life. We want political justice. There are all kinds of things we want. We want to be smart. We want to have social skills. We want to have friends. There are skillful desires and unskillful desires. 
Most of the things I've mentioned are not things that are bad. They're not bad desires. They're not inherently wrong to have these desires. Really. We work, we work toward social justice. We work toward being friendly to people. We work toward having friends. We work on our relationships. The suffering is in the inability to let go of a particular outcome. If I do this, then I'll be happy. It's like we make these little contracts. If I do this, you'll love me. But maybe the contract wasn't really clear. Like my not understanding that probably with this person I should have taken him dancing anyway, even though he told me he would never dance. It was terribly embarrassing. How do I know? We don't know the answers to these things. And we get trapped into, well, if I just do this, then everything's going to be great. The mind will cling to a thought, and it will extend out, and it'll say, this is always true. (laughs) We leave no room for an outcome other than what we desire. You know, we've got it all pictured. This is what's going to be perfect. If I do it this way, you know, the house is going to look like this, and it's going to have these things on it. And if I work hard, then that's, what's, that's what it's going to be. And then when that doesn't happen exactly that way, we are discouraged and dismayed and unhappy. And desire, like all conditioned things, is impermanent. <laughs> Why was I so sure that's what I wanted? I, I am the possessor, possessor, can't say that word today, possessor of a table that my mother-in-law gave me before she died. This table is a source of great irritation to my husband because it has these feet that come out that extend beyond the edge of the table, and he stubs his toe on them with great regularity. He hates this table. Now, I became attached to this table because my mother-in-law, his mother, gave it to me. And it was the only thing that she gave me, you know, a thing that she bequeathed to me. We've been dragging that around, and it's been a a source of pain and angst. And, And one day I realized I actually don't like the table that much because of those feet, for one thing, that stick out and everybody, including me, trips on and stubs their toes. But I was so determined to keep it I made all kinds of rationalizations. I was holding on to it because I was holding on to her. The table is totally irrelevant and causing so much irritation and pain. And once I realized I was really just holding on to her, I could let go of the table. The table was just not important. It wasn't a matter of letting go of it. It's like I just wasn't holding on to it anymore. It's not something I did to let go of this grasping. It's more like I just saw that it was beside the point. It wasn't the thing. So... What are the things that we can notice? 
we can notice that there is a contraction around this. This is too important to me. This is important to me. We all have things that are important, right? You can feel them stand up and hold their fists together and they're tight and they're rigid and this is a stand. And it can be over something really trivial. But that feeling, recognizing that feeling, is a way of recognizing that you're grasping onto something. That there's something that has taken on importance really beyond where you want to take it. So then what do we do? We realize that we can't control outcomes. So then we start beating up on ourselves, judging ourselves for not being good enough, for not, not getting it right. Or we blame others. We blame others. That's another good thing. We batter ourselves with inappropriate effort. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. We get lost in the world of competitiveness. You know, there's a, uh, a license plate rim that says, she who dies with the most jewels wins. And I'm thinking, what exactly are you winning? How sad. How really sad. You know, it's a, it's a, I want, I want, I want. And, and there's, there's just this thing that happens, and it becomes a, a competitive point for us. It leads to anxiety and stress. And it may be like my table, irrelevant. It may be that what we want is something entirely different. So if you've ever tried downsizing, you learn the pain of getting rid of things that you think are really important to you. You know, really valuable things like vases with chipped lips and, uh, you know, the favorite T-shirt that has the holes in the belly. Really important stuff that you just can't let go of. I am a great book lover, and my husband and I had too many books, too many bookshelves. So when we decided to move, we decided to get rid of books. We gave away hundreds of books. This was, in some cases, painful, in some cases, not painful. But it was very interesting to watch. What was interesting to watch was the, ah, the, the, the wanting to grab the book back, The feeling that as you put the book in the box to give it away, feeling the stretch, the determination to give it it away. Every book had a story. Oh, I remember when I read that, this is what was happening. Oh, you know, I may want to look up the breeding habits of birds in Australia or, you know, all, all the reasons that you come up for wanting every individual little thing. It's remarkable. So one of the things I've recently learned about this um, had to do with this move that I recently made. And like the table, I discovered there were a lot of things that I was holding on to. Now the table had a particular connotation, but it turned out there were a lot of things I was holding on to because they gave me a sense of safety you know, if you carry your history along with you, then you're not losing your history, right? Everything has some history associated with it, so you're not giving it up. 
You're holding on to it, and it feels safe. You're comfortable in this, in this cocoon. And then one day, I realized that's what was happening. Oh, oh, it's a way of being safe. Oh, what if I need this again? And the feeling was one of not letting go of that stuff so much as seeing that it was not the point. Once again, it's not the point. Seeing that my issue was around safety, I could say, oh, I want to be safe. It isn't that I'm greedy. There's actually something else there. And seeing that what is underneath that allows me to not be grasping onto something. It is, in fact, a way of relieving that greedy tendency, that holding on, that grasping, that grabbing, that not letting go of. Oh. For dealing with greed hatred or delusion, any of these things that we've talked about, there are two particular skillful means. One of them is mindfulness. Paying attention. Just seeing what's around it. What's happening? What's happening in your body? What happens in your body when you want something? Do you know what that feeling is? Now, for a long time, I had come to the conclusion that when I rolled my tongue, it meant I wanted something. And for five years, I believed that was true. And I would find myself rolling my tongue, and I'd say, Aha! I've caught you. You're wanting something. It was only later, when I was really, really still on retreat, that I discovered it wasn't associated with wanting. It was associating with coming up with the solution. I had already gone past the wanting. I was already on the solution to the problem by the time my tongue was rolling. So then I had to pay closer attention to what, did, what was the wanting thing happening. And, you know, it was more of a, a hollow feeling in my body, this wanting. An emptiness. There was an emptiness that associated with wanting. That's really useful. I can notice there's an emptiness. So I find myself going to the refrigerator, and I'm thinking, am I hungry, or are we on that emptiness thing again? Because the solution to these are very different. Oh, this is what's happening. Oh, this is what's happening. We can focus on the strength of the clinging. How strong am I clinging to this? It's a way to kind of free yourself of the clinging, to notice how strong it is. How strong is this desire? Ooh, I really want that chocolate bar. I really, really, really want that chocolate bar. How bad do I want that chocolate bar? As much as I did last week? No. So now I have deflected myself from wanting that chocolate bar because now I'm thinking about some other aspect of it. This is another way of dealing with it. We can watch irritation. We can say, oh, I'm really irritated. This is really, I'm feeling really agitated over this. We can watch the agitation instead of the wanting part. <clears throat> Sometimes I can, I can find myself um, 
holding on to something like, I have this blouse that's really beautiful that I've never worn and it was expensive. So I'm keeping it because it was expensive and I feel foolish that I bought it. What's the problem here? What's happening is I'm holding, I'm grasping, I'm grabbing onto it because of embarrassment. Oh, hmm. Now I consider the notion of embarrassment and now I can have a different relationship to that blast. I can have a different relationship to that thing that I'm wanting because I understand more about it by just paying attention to what else is there around that feeling of contraction and wanting and grasping. What's that about? Why am I holding on to that? Hoarding can be a form of greed. My husband has boxes and boxes and boxes of family memorabilia, which of course he's going to go through someday. Of course. And pictures? Boxes of pictures. Mostly he's holding on to all those relationships. That's what it represents for him. Holding on. When we see that holding on, we have an opportunity to actually experience compassion toward ourselves. Oh, this is me holding on to that person. This is me holding on to the relationship I had with that person. This is me being afraid of losing that person. Oh, oh, that's sad. Instead of being caught up in the greed of holding on to something, I'm able to see and feel a different experience in my heart-mind in that moment that has to do not with contraction, but with opening up. So now we are in the process of turning what was greed into its opposite, which is compassion, a feeling of openness, moving from contraction to openness. This is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to be better people, even though that's a highly desirable thing. I'd love to be a better person. (laughs) But the end of suffering has to do with changing the imperative changing from grasping onto this idea, this only way of being happy, and opening it up into something else which is more freeing. So turning something that is a grasping motion into an open motion can be exhibited through generosity. Have you ever given away something you really like? Just spontaneously given it away? Oh, here, take this. And there's a moment where you, you take a deep breath. Did I really just do that? But I love that. And then there's the look in the other person's face. And you say, oh, wasn't that great? And then you share joy with them. It's a marvelous experience. 
or the generosity of your time, like listening to the person that you don't want to listen to, or the person you want to listen to, you just wish they were saying something you cared about. The gift of your time is enormous. Practice this. Practice this. <clears throat> so there, there's a, you can, you can practice renunciation, the actual, just give something away. See, how does that feel? Start with something small. Don't, don't start with something big. You don't have to give your house away. How does it feel to just give somebody something? How does it feel to give of your time to someone? How does it feel to let somebody get in line in front of you when you're really frustrated? What does that feel like? Does that soften you? Oh, that's a great, that's a feeling. Just a small difference. If you see yourself closing, holding on to something, Tighten your fist up in your hand. Physically tighten it up and then open it up. See what happens. Feel the blood change in that hand. Feel that release. Sometimes the release, the physical release, allows you to psychologically release what you've been holding on to. Oh. And when you're stuck on something, something is really stuck, Okay, I'm stuck here. Damn. Wow, that's strong. Don't judge. Notice. There's much more value in noticing than judging. There's more value in seeing than changing. We don't deliberately try to hurt ourselves. But we don't always see how we're hurting ourselves. We don't notice it. We have to get the heart used to not clinging. Do a generous thing for yourself. It doesn't have to be big. You just have to notice yourself doing it. Notice yourself doing it. Don't dismiss it. Little things that you do, little acts of generosity. It conditions the mind toward generosity. It's the, it's the whole principle of metta. You know, when we say metta, we wish ourselves well, we wish, make good wishes for other people. It is a conditioning, it is a softening of the heart. It's an opening of the heart. One of the things that we can do for ourselves is set an intention toward non-greed. An intention toward non-greed. There are two parts to an intention. One is the thought, and one is the commitment. So we have a thought. I'm going to do, make a resolution. I'm going to do one act of kindness tomorrow. I'm going to do one act of kindness, just one. It doesn't have to be big but I am going to do it. And in fact, the smaller it is, the more likely I am to do it. (laughs) Because it doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't become, you know, I'm going to save mankind tomorrow. It can be, I'm going to bring an extra cup of tea to my husband. It can be something simple. 
When we exercise an intention, the thought and the commitment, we are reinforcing that tendency, that movement of the heart toward that, toward non-greed. And then we can notice the feeling of an open heart. Oh, oh, I'm going to do that again. It's reinforcing. Oh, oh, that felt good. It's not a moral law, this intention. So then you don't get to beat yourself up if you don't follow through on the intention. It's not, I'm unethical if I don't do this. It's an attitude of mind. This intention is an attitude. It's how we enter the day. My intention is to be kind. My intention is to listen to one person today that I didn't want to listen to or that I didn't think I had time for. Whether an action is wholesome or unwholesome is determined by the intention. What's your intention when you do it? If your intention to to listen to somebody is so they'll like you, that's maybe not so skillful as listening to somebody because you want to offer it to them. And the feeling that you will get from that Each of those intentions is different. Feels more or less skillful to you. Another way of conditioning your heart toward non-greed is to notice when you're contented. So one thing I noticed in the move was that I had given up this magnificent view where I lived, and I missed this view so much. It was so gorgeous, and there was so much sunlight, and my office had windows all around, and I had a terrific view, and now my office is in this dark little room. And every time I compared them, the move didn't look so good. But when I stopped comparing them and just said, so how do I feel in this room right now? Oh, you know, that's not so bad. I started noticing contentment. I didn't have to let go of my dissatisfaction. It evaporated because I was noticing I was actually contented. I hadn't reached some kind of new goal, a vision of the perfect office. I was just content. Practice contentment. Notice when things are okay. We spend so much time chasing after fixing things that are not okay that we don't have time to notice okayness. I'm content. You know, I'm sitting here. I'd like my voice not to be cracking. You know, I'd, <clears throat> I'd like to have more energy. I'd like my voice to be smoother. But you know what? It's okay. Oh, it's okay. Huh. How about that? We train our minds through meditation to notice. And we exercise our minds 
through our intentions. We exercise our ability to be non-greedy by noticing when we're holding, by noticing when we're not holding. Have a mindful reflection when you're eating, when you're walking, when you're driving your car. Check in. What's happening here? How am I right now? I'm tense. Oh, really tense. Wow. Let it go. I don't mean let the tension go. Just see it. See it. Let it be true. Notice what's happening and let it be true. Don't try to grab on to something better. Don't try to hold on to, this is great, I'm going to hold on to it. Just notice it and let it be just as it is. Just as it is. This is practicing contentment. It doesn't mean you become complacent. It doesn't mean that you give up wanting anything, that you don't have desires, that you aren't interested in improvement. It merely means that you let go of that edge that is slicing you because you're grasping onto it too tightly. What's making me uncomfortable? Do I have a choice? Be gentle toward yourself. Waldinger ended his TED Talk with a quote from Mark Twain. There isn't time, so brief is life, for bickerings, apologies, heartburnings, callings to account. There is only time for loving, and but an instant so to speak for that. There is only time for loving, and but an instant to speak for that. So, I'm going to read you a quick poem. I hope this makes sense to you. It's a little obscure, but I think you'll get it. If I can read it appropriately. So, this is a poem by Jane Hirschfield, and the title is A Person Protests to Fate. A person protests to fate. The things you have caused me most to want are those that furthest elude me. Fate nods. Fate fate is sympathetic. To tie the shoes, button a shirt, are triumphs for only the very young, the very old. During the long middle, conjugating a rivet, mastering tango, training the cat to stay off the table, Preserving a single moment longer than this one, continuing to wake whatever has happened the day before. And the penmanship's love practices inside the body. During the long middle, the penmanship's love practices inside the body. I don't know that they do this anymore, but when I was in grade school, they used to, you remember we had penmanship exercises? We would do ovals when we were learning to write. I don't know if any of you did this. We we had to do ovals, and we had to do mm, repetitive motions, 
practicing our penmanship. This is what practicing love is like in the heart. We become good at it by practicing over and over again, despite the things you have caused me to want most are those that furthest elude me. Fate nods, fate is sympathetic. To tie the shoes button assured our triumphs for only the very young, the very old, during the long middle, it's the work of conjugating a rivet, mastering tango, training the cat to stay off the table, preserving a single moment longer than this one, continuing to wake whatever has happened the day before, and the penmanship's love practices inside the body. I wish you all beautiful penmanship that love is practicing in your bodies and that you see it. Thank you. So we have a couple of minutes if anybody has any comments. I know it was a struggle to get here, so. Yeah, we have one here. So what kind of advice would you give to someone who, say, lives with a in-law or a spouse or a sibling or a parent that doesn't like them and that person wants a good relationship with their, say, parent or in-law or spouse? What can they do to let go of that desire so they can stop suffering? Okay, so I, I kind of lost the chain here. So, so person A is living with this tribe, and this tribe does like person A, or person does A does not like person right, A. Right, right. But person A is living with this tribe. Right. And the question is... So person A wants a good relationship with their so-called parent or yes, sibling, okay. but their sibling or parent or in-law or whoever they're living with doesn't want anything to do with them or doesn't like them. Or, so how does that person... Or how do you help someone like that to just let go of this need to have this good relationship with someone that does not want to have the same? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so here's what I did. <laughs> um, there is a practice called equanimity practice. And in this practice... An example of this practice is coming to understand that things are as they are. Despite how I may wish them, things are as they are. So um, when I notice the frustration of wanting to have a better relationship and that it wasn't going to happen because you can't, you can't control them. You can't cause something to happen in them. You can be kind toward them. You can be open and forthcoming. And it may make no difference because there isn't a transaction here. The only thing you have control over is your own reaction. So I'm going to tell you this in two ways. When I was... When I was um, probably eight or nine, I remember going to my mother and saying, you know, 
Andy is beating up on me all the time. He, he teases me. He, he's, always get, he's always giving me a hard time. It's really upsetting to me. And what can I do to make him stop? And she said, stop reacting. Of course, this made me furious. But in fact, it was, it was true. And I, I did. I stopped reacting. And he stopped doing it because it wasn't fun anymore. Not that it should have been fun anyway from my point of view. But the truth was what he wanted was a reaction from me. And so the more I reacted to what he wanted, he just kept repeating it. Now, there are people that want us to be a certain way. We can't make them be a certain way and they can't make us be a certain way. So from within this place, I have to look at my intentions. So I did a practice where I repeated certain phrases and I said over and over and over a hundred times a day until I got it. My happiness or unhappiness depends on my own intentions and actions, not what others may wish for me. Despite what I may wish, things are as they are. May I see things just as they are. May I meet the arising and passing away of all things with equanimity and balance. After you say this a few thousand times to yourself, repeating this, my happiness or unhappiness depends on my own intentions and actions, not what others may wish for me. Despite what I may wish, things are as they are. May I see things just as they are. What happens is that you come to realize that your happiness is your responsibility. It's caused by your intentions and what you want to have happen. And if you can stop wanting things to be different than they are and live an ethical, open life, you will not suffer. But if your happiness depends on them, you will suffer. I'm not giving you a solution. What I'm pointing you to is a way to, to internalize for yourself. This is what I want. These, this, to see, I'm looking for this response. I may not get this response. This is how it is now. Oh, this is how it is. I see. I'm unhappy because I want things to be different. Hmm. And sit with that. And see it. And acknowledge I want things to be different. Have compassion for yourself for wanting it, not pity. Oh, I want this so much. Hmm. When you let go of the wanting, it may be possible to be more open to a solution that is not dependent on how you would like it to look. 
I hope that Thank helps. Thank you. That's very good. Thank you. Okay. Good night, everyone. <laughs>